Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of May 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined today by the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon, who is also um, one of our beloved uh, hosts on the Slate Political Gap Fest. Hey, Emily. Hey, Katie. And by Megan O'Rourke, a writer and critic and the original founder of the Slate Audiobook Club. So we're thrilled to have you back, Megan. Um, Hi. Hi, it's great to be here. Today we will be discussing Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale, alongside its TV adaptation on Hulu. I'm hoping you guys can help me convey the gist of the plot, but our setting is the theocratic republic of Gilead, a society that enshrines white male power and cracks down brutally on female agency. Our protagonist, Alfred, belongs to a class of women called handmaids who are ritually raped by the country's political elite in order to ease a fertility crisis. In addition to handmaids, there are wives who are these kind of pious show horses and Marthas who are servants. None of the women are allowed to read. They cannot own property. Feminists are declared unwomen and banished to toxic waste dumps. Um, I don't know if you guys want to jump in and add things that I've left out. Right after toxic waste dumps, Katie, you thought that jump in. (laughs) Just for us to bookmark for later, um, in the book, she says that it's not rape, which is really interesting. And I think um, sort of a legacy of the 1980s. But anyway, maybe we can circle back to that, that moment in the book. Um, Oh, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing I did want to say is that the show, a, a lot of reviews have said that it's quite faithful to the novel, and that isn't that wasn't my experience um, watching it right after reading the novel. Um, it seems like the timeline is scrambled, and it also departs in a lot of other important ways. I have heard that um, Hulu updated the novel. Uh, to make it more piercingly relevant to our moment with Trump, or maybe more importantly, Pence in the White House, and Republican congressmen determined to roll back reproductive rights. And I wanted to jump into that question of relevance and ask if either of you felt as though the book were speaking directly to us women in 2017, um, maybe more so or less so than the show or just in general. I feel like the book was actually more dated than the show. I think the efforts to um, bring the text or the situation into the present are successful for the most part. And I was really struck when I read the book at how much Atwood created a kind of template, created a world, but barely really created 
characters. And I think what the TV show is doing is really like picking up on this very chilling scenario, which for me is feeling way too relevant right now or way too sort of possible right now. And then the show kind of runs with that and I think really deepens the characters. I don't agree with every single choice um, the show is making, but I actually feel like in some ways it's more thought-provoking or it's also just getting under my skin. Whereas when I was reading the book, I didn't feel that as much. Um, how about how about you, Megan? I, re- I agree with a lot of what you just said, Emily. I mean, the book feels very much a product of the 1980s, and it feels very much a product of the 1980s as a decade proximate to the 1970s, um, by which I mean that there's a lot of really weird and kind of, to me, quite fascinating um kind of response in the book to the 1970s radical feminism, um, which I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about, which is not present in the show. Um, in the book, that really comes in the form of uh, Afred or June's um, thinking about her mother, who is this kind of radical feminist who she's sort of had a break from but now misses. And, and that's completely absent from the show. The show is very much updated, um, you know, for our times. And I think very successfully so. I agree, Katie, that it's not, it, it doesn't feel deeply faithful to the book, but it feels um, like it's honoring the book, I would say. And I think one thing I really think watching the show is that the show is really making use of the possibilities of TV in a very, very smart way. And it's world building in a way that TV can world build that's different from the way a novel world builds. So it was kind of funny. I, I read the novel when I was in high school, um, probably in the early 90s at some point. And it was funny going back to it, having watched uh, the first four episodes of the show before and realizing how inward the book is. I had forgotten how, I I totally agree, it's not really building these characters. It's very much a meditative, inward, almost kind of locked down psychic experience. Um, There's, it's a lot also about storytelling and what we can know and what we don't know and about forgetting. There's a lot of forgetting in the novel that I think is not really part of the TV show. I think that's exactly right. And I also find myself feeling quite impatient with exactly the sort of 80s to 70s tensions uh, about about feminism. Um, It feels like Atwood is angry at kind of overalls wearing caricatured 70s feminists in a way that now reads quite oddly. It's like she's hit it right it's, it's like, like she's, kind of reactionary almost you know totally. it's a, i don't know if that's and, the right word but it's, it's it's an odd it's very odd actually i was struck also in the introduction to the new edition of the book and this is an introduction that i think ran in the new york times at what has this line i'm going to read she says is the handmaid's tale a feminist novel if you mean an ideological tract in which all women are angels and or so victimized they are incapable of moral choice no well, like, <laughs> why is that? Our, I was right. so irritated that like by that. Very like, mired. That's not, yeah. Yes. If by like, feminist you mean the novel takes place yeah. in the Caribbean and has a crab on the cover, right. then gosh, no, it's not feminist. Well, because you right, know, like, this, I mean, yes, there the, must have been some '70s feminist who actually fit that caricature, but I don't know who she is, and she's not powerful now. She doesn't really exist as a type in any meaningful way. No, except as a historical type that. Except as insofar as we see this like pendulum swing of feminism that, you know, partly we don't have that because there was a pendulum swing against it. And then now we're back in a kind of, I would say, more of a modulated feminism, you know, in terms of stereotypes of it. But, you know, it is important to note that in the book, Gilead 
it really is formed. Um, it comes out, it's sort of a reaction to radical feminism, right? So in a way, it's this cautionary tale that's like, well, don't be a radical feminist or else they're going to come get you. It's not so much. Yeah, it's. And I mean, exactly. And then obviously there's some we're being a little harsh in that. I think the I think the passage where in the book, the narrator thinks about, oh, I would just I would give anything to be with my mother now. I think that's supposed to be a little bit of a like, well, I overreacted to her feminism. But it is the case that the world building, you know, the the last um, the, the, the accounts we have of why Gilead came to exist within the book. It is very much as a reaction to radical feminism and the claims that radical feminists made, you know, in the context of the book and sort of, you know, not, you know, going on going on fertility strikes and not bearing children while there was nuclear, while there were nuclear plants, things like that. And it's really interesting um, and quite and quite strange. There was something else I was going to say, but now I don't know what it was. I'm a little ahead in the television show. Um, so I'm now talking about the sixth episode and I'll try not to spoil it, but the the account the sixth episode starts to give of the foundation of Gilead is one that feels much more resonant to me. And it's about the idea that conservative women, um, like the commander's wife on the show, wanted to bring back a kind of era of very traditional right. domesticity. I just limiting saw that one women, too. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's I very just interesting like, and not in the book. And I thought that was a great um, addition to the TV series. I yeah. totally agree. Yeah, and it yeah. felt much more relevant to me yeah. in what we're yeah. actually grappling with now in our politics. Oh, that reminds me what I was going to say is out of curiosity about this kind of semi-reactionary or complicated historical you know, tension I was feeling in the book, I went back to read the New York Times book review um, to see you know, who had reviewed it and what did it say. And it, it turned out that Mary McCarthy had reviewed it. And I I, I suggest reading it. It's really fascinating. And I'll just read you one um, one quote, she basically says, you know, that the essential element of a cautionary tale is recognition, um, you know, that it has to shock us. And that was the effect of 1984 and A Clockwork Orange and Brave New World. And then she says, it is an effect for me almost strikingly missing from Mar Margaret Atwood's very readable book, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, which goes back to your question, Katie, and I think also goes back to the point you were just making, Emily, about this kind of the, the way the TV show brings in conservative women's, you know, kind of call for a return to domesticity, that feeling a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of of our moment and believable. You know, it, it's quite interesting that even at the time in 1986, this didn't quite land, at least for Mary McCarthy, as a like t as a troubling forecast of what was about to come. That's so interesting, especially because despite all of that, it has really stuck with us. And there is something about the idea of a dystopian future in which women's reproduction is completely taken out of their control and becomes the basis for this authoritarian society. Something about that is very powerful. I was wondering, um, Emily, you know, it seemed to me reading the review, she talks a little bit about abortion and conservatives, but it seems like almost that the war over abortion has gotten more intense since then. And the, the sense of reproductive rights being under attack is almost weighs on us almost more maybe than in the 1980s. I don't know. Is that true? I mean, I was wondering if that's part of why the book has endured is that, you know, it actually this 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 vision of this dystopian future, is, even though it's not quite you know, what one thinks is right around the corner, that there are elements of it. And this was your original question, Katie. I mean, I did feel that there were elements of it that felt troublingly close, even as there were other elements that felt totally improbable, totally hard to imagine. 
Well, I think you're right that our continuing conflict over abortion, and I would add birth control, right, is part right. of what brings this book up to date. Um, in answer to question, I think it's 1987 or around then when um, we have the first killing at an abortion clinic right. and that idea of a violent threat to um, abortion providers um, as much as women really emerges. And, you know, since then, we've had recently still some violence, perhaps less. And increasingly, I think this kind of uh, sense that this this struggle and this moral divide is with us for the long term. And there's a kind of, yeah. um, you know, omnipresence and enduring quality of it that uh, it's taken different guises. But the idea that there are women on both sides of this and that there are conservative women who see preventing abortion and limiting access to birth control as a rallying cry is one that is, you know, deeply present and really a part of the Trump administration. Yeah. I mean, a few things I wanted to bring up, uh, The as you said, the deviation in the TV show where Serena Joy is actually kind of the architect of Gilead's reproductive policies. She's the one who says um, or who sort of makes fertility the the core principle around which the society is organized and who has the sort of casts of different women. Um and then we sort of see her husband, the commander, take that idea and enact it and then sort of um, sh- shuttle her off to the side and say, and now you can no longer have power. This is the world that you envisioned and we have um, made it so. And you kind of see her buyer's remorse play out in a in a subtle and complicated way that she doesn't directly express to him. Um, and that's not – I mean, that's not really – in the book, in the book, instead, as you also pointed out, we have the uh, figure of the mom, the second wave feminist mom. Um, so, I mean, that was an interesting substitution, um, I thought. But another thing that is interesting to me, thinking about just um, Trump, Trump's America versus Atwood's uh, dystopia, is that um, Trump is definitely not a kind of moral uh, Christian thinker. Like he is. He is also about objectifying the female body, but objectifying it for sex, maybe, as opposed to for reproduction. Um, and so at first I was thinking, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, both worldviews are animated by a contempt for women as people, but one uh, sort of uh, positions women as just like sex objects and the other positions them as reproductive uh, mechanisms or something. Um, but then I sort of thought that Trump himself is not a very hedonistic guy. Like, he doesn't seem to take a lot of erotic pleasure, even in, like, his beautiful wife, Melania. He just sees her as, like, a symbol of his power. And so there's a way in which this um, this book and this TV show uh, speaks to the, uh, the kind of Trumpian sexuality that's not actually about taking pleasure in anything, but just about um, having control. Right. I think that's true. Um, I mean, I also think that, you know, Trump has empowered the religious right. He's clearly like happy to make common cause with them, um, giving them the kind of judicial appointments they want in particular. And that also he's he's not a feminist, except with the maybe somewhat little bit exception of his 
his relationship with Ivanka Trump. Um, there's a way in which women just seem completely instrumental to me watching him and the way he thinks. And most of the people he has surrounded himself with in the White House are not women, with, you know, the notable exception of Kellyanne Conway and I guess uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. But generally, he seems like someone who would not create this terrible Gilead, but who would not prevent it from happening either. And I agree, like he's, you know, what Trump is doing is enabling the religious right or, you know, the, the so-called moral majority. I mean, that that is, you know, if the moral majority is part of what Atwood was kind of writing against, that's, you know, I agree, Trump doesn't really care if they get their way in some ways, even though he doesn't actually care very much about their agenda, I think. Um, but, you know, what was really on my mind um, in terms of contemporary politics reading this book and watching the TV show was not so much Trump in particular, um, but the the attempt to do away with the ACA and replace it with the AHCA. Because what I found, you know, I'm sort of a little bit constitutionally averse to, you know, like, oh, suddenly we're living in the Handmaid's Tale. Like, that seems sort of an, an exaggeration to me. Like, we're not living in the Handmaid's Tale, right? And in very important ways, we, we know we're not. Definitely not. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but I have to say, so I was very skeptical going in. I had read these reviews and I was like, oh, this just feels like sort of this, you know, rhetorical thing where everyone, you know, we're under attack, but still, it's not that. But then I have to tell you guys that reading the book and watching the show, I felt really, really shaken. And I started watching the show in the middle of the AHCA, the last round of the stuff over the AHCA. And I think what was making me feel shaken was that so little has changed um, in terms of securing reproductive rights and also prenatal care, you know, mater- you know maternity care, pa- parental leave, family leave, you know, all of this stuff. And I, I and just watching, you know, Republicans get up there and say, like, well, why should I care for, you know, why should I pay for prenatal care? Like, why should I pay for your mammogram? I, I just thought, wow, that is like a fundal mis- fundamental misunderstanding of kind of the social fabric of democracy and what we all have to do collectively in order to build a functioning democracy where our, you know, garbage is taken and we don't have diseased water and so on and so forth. And we have children who are born healthfully because they got prenatal care, you know. And I just thought, well, that's that weirdness is sort of what's at the heart of both the TV show, that weirdness, you know, toward women and toward the basic care that women as um the people who bear children need in particular, like that is just still absent. And it's absent in the book and it's really absent in our society. And that's where I find that kind of terrifying similarity, if that makes sense. Yeah, the capacity for cruelty of the the book and the show. I mean, that is where it hits me. Like what was shocking to me, there, there's a lot that is really painful to watch. And I actually found the TV show more visceral and, and yeah. gruesome. And maybe that's just because TV can sort of hit you in various, uh, through various senses and various modes. Um, but I mean, it was, it was really difficult to watch both the complicit witnesses of these brutalities and the people who were carrying out the punishments. Um, and I think that feeling of being taken aback that people would be okay with these kinds of things happening mm-hmm. was something that I had been also feeling just watching our politics. So that, yeah, yeah that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. There are two other aspects of the show that have really made me feel shaken. And I wonder um, 
if you share these reactions. So both in the book and the show, I think there's a scene with June's husband, Luke, in which she's lost her job and they've frozen her bank account. And mm -hmm. for in both instances, it's because she's a woman. They froze the accounts of all the female um, customers. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of you in this kind of meant to be sweet, but totally patronizing and paternalistic <laughs> tone. And yeah. I I literally like felt my body seizing up as that mm -hmm. was happening. Mm -hmm. And it I then I was trying to think why like my husband, I don't think would ever do that. And and I trust him not to but I felt this sense that like, this was a plausible outcome that like well meaning men instead of standing up for women when they're being marched out of their place of employment on mass would sort of like, you know, shrug and like pat them on the back on the way out the door. You know, it's really interesting reading this and thinking about this after just having had a baby because <laughs> there's right. so much stuff around babies that's kind of like that. Um, but yeah, that scene is um, just a devastating scene in both the book and in the movie. In the book, I thought it really represented what's most complex and interesting about the book um, and where the book is able to get at these kind of gray areas of the well-intentioned and how something like this might happen. Um, it's really it's really upsetting. In the, in the TV show, unlike in the book, um, Moira calls him on it, right? Um, Offred's friend, the friend. Moira. Moira's the friend. Right, Moira's friend. the best friend yes. who who, is a, who has a really powerful passage in the book, um, kind of her own story in the book um, and who's played, I think, wonderfully in the TV show. I mean, the, she really comes to life. Um, so yeah, Moira kind of takes him to task and it's a great it's a great scene and it's kind of shrugged off as a joke. And yeah, I had that reaction too. And I think it's probably the way they all end up having to shrug it off. And you think there's so many moments like that still in, in a woman's life, I think where she um, has to do that kind of shrugging off or kind of, you know, something is not quite understood. Right. Yeah. But what was the other moment? Oh, well, no, the other thing I wanted to ask you guys about, so Francine Prose, um, a writer I respect and don't always agree with, wrote an essay about the show for the New York Review of Books in which she's quite critical of it. And one of the things she said that I just wanted to get your thoughts on was that she thought that the choice to cast very attractive actors as the commander who's played by Joseph Fiennes and the kind of like ice queen princess wife, the name of the actress is out of my brain, but yeah. she was Yvonne arguing that that's or something. Yeah, that's Thank right. you. Yeah. Yeah. She was on Dexter, which is how I know. <laughs> so prose was arguing that that choice is muddying in terms of thinking about the issues of um, sexual consent and rape, which you raised earlier, Megan, because watching fines have this like horrible sex with um, June while June is lying on the lap of the commander's wife, like that it's different to watch a very attractive threesome than like some gross old people with a younger woman. And, and that in a sense, the, um, the, evil of it isn't quite driven home. And I was mm. wondering what you thought about that. I did notice that, you know, in the book, it's very clear that they're older, right? That the commander in particular mm -hmm. is older. There's a lot of mention of his graying hair. Um, I think there's something to that. I think there's a bit of the TV, you know, the TV-ifying of everything is uh, happening. And part of that is that everyone is attractive. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm intrigued more by Serena Joy um, in the mm -hmm. show than I am by 
like, or, or at least I'm more intrigued by the change to Serena Joy than, I mean, mm. it just sounds like, okay, we want to see Ralph Fiennes on screen or however Joseph, you Joseph Fiennes. Oh, Joseph Fiennes. <laughs> Zero for two. That guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, he is. But, it's true. Like, I do find him very handsome. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, but that's also. And yet appalling. That's no, no, no. One, right, right, right. Not, yeah. <laughs> There's no but that also there. makes it a little bit more nuanced, right? Because like you have this ghastly scenario in the yeah. book where he's just this monster and she is just enduring this ceremony and it becomes a little bit more complicated um, when both of these characters are also potentially sexual creatures or, or, or right. can be viewed through that lens. And I, I was reading an interview where um, the director said that he uh, deliberately chose this beautiful blonde woman uh, because she could be perceived as kind of a sexual rival for Offred, uh, which on one hand really annoyed me. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. oh, great, let's have a catfight. It's cat a little fight. convenient um, for the television viewer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Though we yeah. have to say that scene, it's not like that scene is titillating. Um, no, right. not it is, I mean, you know, that scene where, where they have disturbing. the ceremony. It's it's yeah. deeply, deeply upsetting. And I don't know if you've watched the most recent episode, Katie, but there's a moment in it, too, where Offred is alone with the commander. I'm not going to say too much, but it is also not titillating, <laughs> you know. And so I don't feel like his handsomeness... Um, kind of objectively is changing my relationship to him on screen very much. I mean, yes, if he were older and less attractive, maybe that would it would come through in a different way. But actually, there's a different kind of monstrousness that comes through because it's like this could be a sexual partner of hers. This could be a man she chose freely. And it's not. And he is of her generation. And and there's something so distorted there that I actually I don't think – I sort of theoretically understand what prose is saying, but I didn't feel it experientially. This also gets back to what you both brought up about the sort of um, deepening of the characters in the show from these kind of silhouettes in the book. Like there, what I was a little bit disturbed reading the book by the sense that there are like various types of women. There's kind of the desiccated, cold, um, infertile, older mm-hmm. wife, and then the sort of warm spirited um sort of sensual but but oppressed offred and and that sort of um carving up of different types of women uh bothered me a little bit and i like that the show is complicating that by showing how arbitrary those different designations are and you know a handmaid in a different world could be a wife and a wife could be a handmaid the one thing I really didn't like in the show, and it's it's an extension, this goes off of something you're saying, and it's something that's troubling in the book, too, is in general, I think in our culture, the depictions of infertile women are so cruel, um, you know, that there is this kind of depiction of infertile women as, you know, desperate and sad and full of longing and, and not, you know, not able to be fully realized and, um, you know, and in some ways, like, cruel, right? And, and the scene in the film in the tv show that it's very powerful but i think problematic where serena joy thinks that um i'm gonna give a little bit of a spoiler thinks that um offred is pregnant and then it turns out she's not pregnant and she just loses it and locks offred in the room and and when i was watching it i hadn't read the book yet again i was like well this is a little weird it feels 
it just felt a little off somehow. Um, well, and it was also crazy because it was it's hardly crazy fault that she's not no, pregnant. And, and also, like, like, wouldn't Serena Joy have known that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also, like, I'm like, Serena Joy wants um, offered to get pregnant, and she like locks her in a room and doesn't let her see the sun or like eat regular food. And you're like, that's so counterproductive. It just didn't make sense. Exactly. I didn't think it was a good yeah. story choice. And I also thought, oh god, it's like yet more of this kind of infertile woman like just loses it and becomes like you know the evil stepmother queen, you know ice right. queen, you know blah blah blah, locking you know Rapunzel up in her tower. And like, of course, it's the fertile one. I don't know. I wished in the show and in the book that there was some complicating. I feel like it's in one of them. There's a moment where one of the wives is kind of kind. And I can't remember now. It's a very brief moment. I can't remember. Oh, I know what you're talking about. It's a scene that I think. No, that's a mean scene. It's a scene scene. in the show with a different handmaid off Glen, right? Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I mean. Right, yeah, so I, like I the, agree with you. That was welcome because it just sort of broke up yeah. all the stereotyping. It broke up the stereotyping. Right. And I just thought, oh, I know these are conservative women. And so, you know, they're kind of going along with it because they're the wives. But like, couldn't there be couldn't they're all just like bitches. They're kind of like rich bitches, <laughs> you know, and, I was, and they're infertile, right. you know, and I was like, oh, really, couldn't we complicate that a little bit? I don't know. Do we see redemption in the cards for Serena Joy, though? Maybe, maybe. Serena's being, Serena Joy is being complicated, I agree. Yeah, like, I feel like the book is a lot more reductive about her than the show so far. I mean, granted, I haven't seen all the way to the end of the show, but it seems like there's kind of a glimmer of sorority happening when she realizes, oh, actually... I mean, in the sort book of, as well, we'll Serena realizes. <laughs> she, it's a little, okay, it's a little right. complicated. I would, I would not oh. redeem her yet. <laughs> Shoot. I mean, the all other right. thing is, like, to be super literalist for a moment, it's never explained and doesn't make a whole lot of sense who is a wife and who is a yeah, handmaid. That's exactly. been like hanging me up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and also, like, wouldn't some of the wives the... be fertile? You know right, what and, I mean? Like, like that's the what I mean. Fertile women be the wives. Like, right. they'd be the one who are valued. It would seem like yeah. a simpler universe. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll but aren't the, the handmaids are supposed to mediate between the between the wives and the commanders because sexual desire is so taboo, right? Is like, that true? I don't know. I don't I know. That was actually right something that, that puzzled me about the book is like, are we supposed to believe that this this society holds sexual desire in contempt and does not want anything to do with it? Or are the men sort of supposed to be able to get their rocks off like through the Jezebel um, which is like oh no secret. no Jezebels I mean I think okay. the book's pretty explicit and that's what all the Bible is doing in the book is doing what mm. you said earlier kind of draining sexual passion out of the society but it wasn't clear to me and maybe there is a moment in the book I kept looking at that I don't think she ever says I think you're right that yeah, they have to I think it's about fertility and then that is confusing mm. because you think well surely it would play out that some wives would be fertile. Maybe we're just not seeing those wives. They don't have handmade. I don't know. Um, but one thing that's different about the TV show is you do feel that some of the world building of the book, like there are these different class issues and you get more about the colonies. Like I felt it's effective the way that the show focuses so relentlessly on this kind of empty, arid, upper class world. But I kept being like, mm. where are all the people? Like, aren't there some else? people here? And, and the yeah. book is clearer about that and does a little more world building in some ways that I found I found useful. But to go back to your question, Katie, I mean, there's this long scene in the book um, that's a really crucial scene. It's quite near the end. And it's sort of we haven't talked about the end, which I think we we should do. But, um, you know, it's a very long scene in what's basically a kind of um, not a strip club. What am I looking for? Like a, a, a 
like a brothel. A brothel. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. It's like a fancy cabaret brothel, um, which, you know, exposes, you know, it's sort of near the end of the book. And I think it exposes the utter hypocrisy. It's meant to expose the utter hypocrisy of Gilead and of all these commanders who, you know, say they want this, but then they're like sneaking out at night to basically like sleep with prostitutes. Right. Um, Yeah. And it felt a little bit it's it felt a little hasty and again this is where the book felt slightly dated there was a lot of like oh and they wear this kind of cheap lingerie i mean partly i was realizing like how pornified the culture has become since 1986 <laughs> right so like, were like they would stuff. definitely have better clothes <laughs> i was like i don't know some of these details that are like racy in the book you're just like wow it is amazing how much the, more sexualized yeah <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, but what about the book? I mean, did you guys find the the book ends very abruptly and we don't know anything that happens. I'm wondering, I'm figuring the TV show is going to depart from the book in this way. But well, I think in we some know? ways the abrupt ending and the kind of almost incompleteness of the book is a big opportunity for the TV totally. show. I felt like mm. Atwood almost wrote like the um the world building for a show. Right. right? For season because one. It's, <laughs> yeah, for season one that like yeah. here it is kind of laid out and and right. she only moved the pieces on the chessboard a little bit of the way. Yeah. And you can yeah. but um the other thing we should mention about the book is it has this I think, um, unfortunate afterward, yeah. which turns yeah. the the first person narrative into this like memoir found 150, I think, years yeah. later, that's like being dissected in terms of its historical authenticity. And it just <laughs> takes all the power away from this like scary place that Atwood has built because suddenly it's yeah. only an artifact as opposed yeah. to real. And it's like a weirdly academic and sort of like a satire of academia in a way that yes. I was like, eh, you know, at this point in time, like it just doesn't have the power and like the writing, she's satirizing academic writing, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's a lot funny. about like who who was the commander? Is it Waterford or is it this other guy um, whose name I'm forgetting? Um, yeah, it was totally obscure and weird, wasn't it? You know, and yeah. then it's a lot of just like details about the. It, it felt like she couldn't, you know. And and it was funny. I I recently did um, interviewed the novelist Anne Enright, and she said this really interesting thing, which I had, which was in retrospect obvious, but I had never thought of it. Which she said, storytelling is really easy. She's like, look at a five year old. A five year old can tell an amazing story. She said. Ending your story is what's hard. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's exactly right. You know, it's it's the end of a novel that usually kind of often makes or breaks it in some ways. I mean, I'm, I'm overstating the case. But I really thought of that comment with this book because I thought Atwood didn't know what to do. She didn't want to clarify what happened, but she didn't really have a way to do it. So she does this strange you know, afterward, where we're cutting forward in time, an academic is giving us historical notes. It's a, it's a, not only that, it's a partial transcript of the proceedings of the 12th Symposium on Gileadian Studies held as part of and the International weird, Historical like, Association Convention. Marks. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> yeah. like really weird. And it's, it's spoken by someone begins whose name is Crescent Moon. I don't know. The whole thing just felt, that felt very dated. Yeah. Um, they should lock yeah. that off, I think. Can I ask you guys another question about the text of the book? So, or a character in it. I'm really um, uncertain about what to make of June's attitude towards having a baby. So, you yeah. know, maybe the most salient fact about her to me is that she had a daughter with her husband. That daughter was taken away from her. Um, it's how the show starts out. It's also just like, 
as a mother myself, I find it to be this just um, moment I can't recover from in the narrative. And she definitely thinks about it. It's like for sure part of her character and woven into her consciousness, but she also seems to want to have a baby. And in some ways that's totally natural. It's like the related to the way in which she can't completely demonize the commander because she's in this world and the whole mark of survival is to have a child. And yet I was kind of horrified by the way in which she sort of passively buys into that. Um, what did you, how did you react to that? I don't know. I guess I thought that was a little more complex. So I know what you mean. So what was interesting to me, again, in, in comparison, in the book, in the in the TV show, the loss of the child is, it, I just find it agonizing. I mean, I, almost to the point where I couldn't watch the show because I was watching it at night while my baby was sleeping and I would have to like go check on him <laughs> because it's <laughs> yeah. so painful. You know, it's so painful to contemplate and and the visual rendering of, um, you know, her memories of her daughter make her daughter so present, right? And so real and so the loss of her so palpable. Um, in the book, the loss is very different. And I think, because at first I thought this is really strange. These scenes about her daughter are so muted. Um, you know, what accounts for that? And I... As I read on, I thought, you know, she's really trying to interrogate and investigate forgetting and cultural forgetting. And that mm-hmm. is, I think, a very interesting aspect of the book that the TV show completely loses, which is to say it's been three years and yet Offred has kind of almost totally forgotten her past life. Like when she remembers Luke and she remembers her daughter in the book, it's like she's having to pull it up from this kind of mm. dark place and the writing gets very kind of abstracted. Um, it, it feels very different from other memories. And she even has a passage where she talks about her time at the Red Center and says they gave us pill- this forgetting I feel is not natural, like they must have given us something. Um, so there's this kind of twofold investigation, I think, of like how you kind of brainwash people. And then also like when a culture shifts radically, like how fast forgetting happens and how dangerous that is. And I thought that was actually really interesting in the book and that therefore her her own kind of muddled, I want to have a child and, you know, she and Nick, the, the chauffeur, start sleeping together and she thinks at one point she has his baby and she's happy about it. That all felt actually like evocative of this kind of terrifying forgetting that I think Atwood is kind of not condemning, but, you know, is holding up as like, this is a deep problem of ours. Um, wow. I don't know. That, that was how that I is, read that. That is so I fascinating because I saw it in a completely different way, but I like your reading so much better. <laughs> like, so for you, this is, well, so so for you, it's about normalization and the perils of amnesia yeah. and, and, yeah. and not being able to access that, that time before. And for me, it was about privacy. Like, I mm. thought that Margaret was Margaret Atwood. <laughs> Margaret. Um, I thought Atwood was trying to make a point about sort of interiority and control ah. over your narrative and that it, in the same way that the the end kind of um, hammered right. Right. on right. the on- authenticity and, and what can we know about this woman and what happened to her. That, and also in the way that um, we don't get June's name in the book. We don't, right. there are, there's right. a lot in, there's a lot about this character that is made explicit and clear in the TV show that is withheld from us right? Um, in That's the book. Really interesting. And I thought that this was sort of Atwood's like, well, no, you don't get to know everything about this woman. You get access to her thoughts and her stream of consciousness. But there are things, for instance, she says that um, 
or Alfred says that she tells her true name to Nick, but mm. that name doesn't appear right. in the text. And to me, that was sort of like, no, you don't get to know you voyeur, like you mm-hmm. reader. You you don't mm-hmm. get you don't get to see I that. Think that's um, totally there too, because you're right. I mean, so much of the book is explicitly about storytelling. There's a lot of references yeah. to storytelling and what can be told and how it can be told differently. So. Maybe both those things are there in some in some way. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and maybe also one of the things that would really wants to think about is in a dystopian society where freedom is taken away, what happens to stories? Like just right. very literally, how do people right. remember anything? How do they have any space in which to tell themselves about what happened to them and what happened before. Um, And that's a theme in 1984 too, right? Isn't there a whole thing of the main character like reading to his lover and she falls asleep in the middle and isn't even interested in this whole account? And I think that question is completely riveting, right? Because you could also argue that it's a survival mechanism, that if you, right, like that it would be unbearable to to remember too much and that the people who – do probably die very yeah. literally. I think that she does suggest a little bit about that in the book kind of very indirectly. But that was my take that, you know, it just would be too painful to. Well, and actually, it's not even indirect, right? They say this thing that they use as a voiceover in the show. I'm not going to remember exactly what it is about. Like, you can't go to that place like it will. It can it could destroy mm-hmm. you. And she's talking about um, she's talking about memories. I mean, another thing about how we don't learn everything about Offred's identity, I think maybe Atwood wants us to think of her a little bit as every woman Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and is not heroic. There are ways in which she's kind of deliberately made to not be this like fiery, you know, exciting protagonist, right? I mean, she is not Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. (laughs) And actually, she's not even, she's not even offered from the TV show, who I do feel like is a little bit more like a stealth agent waiting to like become part of the revolution. You know, like she's, she's ambivalent, but she's like gearing up, you know, and the show is, I definitely, are they doing a second season? Do we know? Like, do we know if they're going to? They are. So so they're going to have to invent a story. So one presumes the story will be of some, you know, exploration of Mayday and how, and all of this. Um, you know the revolution, the resistance, but in the book, she's not quite that geared up. Right, it's lacking. I mean, even the end of the book, when yeah. you don't, it yeah. ends on this cliffhanger. She's being whisked away, and it's not even clear why anyone's bothering to rescue her. Exactly. I do want to talk a little bit about um, what you have both referred to as the, or I think Megan, you used the word inward, and the mm-hmm. sort of the. Because I think one difference between the Offred we meet in the novel and the Offred we meet on the show is um, the novel's Offred is passive and also more concerned with her own kind of compulsive wordplay, trying to compose herself and stay sane. And the Offred in the show is, as you said, a kind of you go girl, mm-hmm. um, nascent member of the resistance. Um, and I don't know. I'm not sure if I have arrived at like which Offred I prefer. I think the Offred for the, from the show is the only one we can stay with over time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Offred from the book is more interesting and more difficult to grapple with in some ways because she's more frustrating. But I don't think yeah. we could stay in her company for like an endless number of television episodes. Yeah, I think we're really talking about genre here. And it, it's a reminder in some ways, as much as the book is flawed, I do think it's more withholding and complicated probably than the yeah. show is going to be. Yes. And I like the show. I mean, I think they're doing a really I mean, I have a few reservations here and there about story choices they made that felt um, 
just felt a little – it was interesting. I realized reading the book, all the moments were in the show where I was like, huh, what happened? They were inventions of the show that just didn't quite track. But, yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think the the offer of the book is in some ways more – could could be more interesting even than she is in the book, but is is quite interesting and complicated in the show. She's very satisfying. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, maybe maybe perhaps – going to be too satisfying I mean, I think that's going to be the tricky line that the show is going to have to walk I guess like what fascinated me because she's always playing these little games where she is saying to herself oh well the red on the on the mouth of this murdered uh man who's in a mask um the the red on the mask is not similar to the red on the tulips even though my brain is making this connection and she has to sort of interrogate all of her perceptions and then she'll hear a word and it sounds like another word and she'll just start sort of going down these rabbit holes mm-hmm. um and it just kind of drove home for me when your when the outside of your life and the inside of your life um are so different When there's no way to sort of bridge what you experience inside your skin versus like what you see or or what other people would see of you, um, it just has a way of destabilizing everything. Um, And I thought the book did such a good job of like just pushing what happens when someone is so intensely policed that they start doubting their own minds um, and you sort of see her devolving into nonsense, um, and she becomes a more sort of um, fragmentary uh, voice and a, a sort of a harder to grasp entity on the page than she ever is in the in the show. And maybe that also has to do with the fact that you're you're really confined to Alfred in the book, but just by virtue of having a TV show and having a camera, like you get to be distinct from her. You get to look at what you want to look at um, as opposed to just like being trapped in her narration. Totally. I mean, I think in the book, you really do get a sense of what literally of the, it's almost made literal the idea of being a prisoner in one's own skin. You know, there is something about the existential bizarreness of the situation. Like how did it, how did how did I end up here? And and also, um, I think Atwood, some of the most interesting writing is exactly what you're talking about. It's where Atwood is exploring, like, what happens to the mind um, in these circumstances? What happens to language? What happens to story? What kinds of distortions set in? And I thought that a lot of that was very interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess I would also argue that the sort of, I mean, to me, the language seemed very sensuous and lyrical. Like there were beautiful images. There is like this kind of scene where uh, Offred is gazing at this glowing egg. The egg is like glowing in the sun and she feels an intense pleasure in the egg. And you sort of see how important the senses remain to her because she's been deprived of so much. Um, and obviously you can't replicate that in a show, but the sort of the beauty of the visuals in the show, I think we're doing what the beauty of the language in the book yeah. was supposed to do. Yeah. And, and I thought some, that was really, really well done. That's reminding me that there's some moment where she's in the kitchen with with the Martha, um, as she's called, and she's like, looks at, in the book, it's dish towels, but there's something like it in the in the in the show too where she looks at something in the kitchen and this kind of flicker passes over um the actress it's elizabeth moss right her face and who does an amazing job i think with her face Mm -hmm. to just you know kind of convey a lot of different things um there's some moment like that in the show where i i yet again i hadn't yet read the book and i totally got what was being 
felt and you know that moment of like wait i used to live in a kitchen and now i live in this yeah. kitchen you know something like that i'm i'm forgetting exactly the moment but it's eerie yeah and the show does a the show does a lot really well in terms of trying to translate um these inner moments into visual moments right and the sense of what it how survival would depend on being able to um, take pleasure in what you can still take pleasure from, right? right. When your world is kind of bleached right. of purpose, then like some, seeing something beautiful or um, the smell of flowers are another thing that come up, um, yeah. I think, in both that some sense yeah. that you'd have to have. And they, they, both the show and the book talk about food she's eating, too, mm -hmm. in a kind of visceral mm -hmm. way. I mean, it's interesting. This kind of reminds me of, you know, what I started out by saying, which is that in the book, she takes pains to describe when during the ceremony, she says, you know, this is not rape. I chose it. I could have I could have not become a handmaid. And of course, that seems quite wrong to us um, for a lot of reasons. And I mean, I think philosophically it's wrong because of she didn't truly have choice. Right. She had a circumscribed set of choices that were none of which were her choice. Um, so to have become a handmaid didn't mean that she's, you know, not part of a system that is exploiting and commodifying the female body and female fertility and in a, in a way that is kind of codified rape. Um, but I think that that's part of the tension in the book is a sort of a survivor's guilt. And it made me think a lot about collaboration and places like, um, you know, Berlin under communism, you know, just uh, there's been, you know, just very interesting documents of like, because also a feature of this world is that everyone is informing on everyone else. We haven't talked about yeah. the eyes, but the eyes yes. who are the kind of s private spies, the secret, the secret service, um, the Stasi in a way. Um, they're a really crucial aspect of this society because without them, I think it wouldn't be quite so claustrophobic and coercive a society. But it has this feature that is familiar to us from other authoritarian regimes um, that is really creates uncertainty everywhere. Right. And that's used to great effect in both the book and the movie is sort of, you know, is 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 the chauffeur Nick, is he an I or is he not an I? Like who informs on whom? How, you know, in the sense that you can never trust anybody. That is really terrifying. Um, right. And also just things like what does an everyday pleasantry mean? Like what does it mean when right. someone says like we're enjoying wonderful weather or or when right. you have a Scrabble game? Like what does a Scrabble game mean? What does a doctor do? There is a right. scene where a doctor might be offering to help Offred or might be trying to have sex with her or maybe both. But it's just very striking how these attempts at oppression backfire. Uh, I mean, th right. these men want to simplify and purify society, and so they're they're um, they're putting everyone's behavior in very strict uh, constraints, and yet that just makes everything less simple, uh, more confusing because you nothing means what it appears to mean, um, and so that was just something that that struck me in the same way that like when you try to prevent people from feeling, they actually feel small things like. Um, or they smell the flowers or they see the egg glowing and it's like more intense than it would have been otherwise. And it's kind of revolutionary. I mean, that reminds me that yeah. one thing that's sort of interesting in that afterward that we that we kind of <laughs> sound roundly dismissed was one thing I did find kind of interesting was that um, they developed this idea that that first round of commanders, you know, gave themselves these permissions like going to the brothel 
Um, and then basically we're all, you know, the eyes came in and they were purged. The eyes came and got them and we're like, you guys are corrupt. And a kind of new, more middle of the way commander emerged. And I thought that was very interesting because you think, you know, yes, like they just to what you're talking about, Katie, about this, you know, trying to create a purity and a sense of rules that then, you know, totally everyone's breaking all the time, even the commanders who are the architects of this. Um, and, you know, I've been watching the Americans, too, and I don't know if you guys have been watching this season, but there's sort of a, a plot line about Russia and people about, the you know, the Soviet Republic, sorry, and people um, and food and sort of who's getting bribes for better food. And it's very it's very relevant to this whole world that, you know, everyone is breaking the rules and yet some people get punished for that. Yeah. And yeah, you create absolutely. what you fear. Right. I mean, they're right. they're scared of rampant female sexuality. And what do the women who've been deprived of political voice do? They try to seduce the guards so that they can get out. I mean, there's that scene when Offglen, who is a gender traitor, which is to say she's gay, um, tries to feel up her guard um, to mm -hmm. avoid being tortured. And she has become exactly what they right. Right. feared, you right. know, this, this temptress. Right. But they right. forced her into it. We have to go back to the Scrabble for a moment. Yeah. It's such a genius mm -hmm. choice because yeah. it's utterly deviant to play right. Scrabble with a woman, <laughs> not only because the commander's alone in his study with her, but because she's not allowed to read. And I'm sure for you guys, as well as for me, there was something just so dreadfully unbearable and poignant about that. And it also forced me to think about the fact that, and I don't mean to sound, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, but it. You know, there are parts in the world in which this is like a true thing. Women are not allowed to be literate. And yeah, we don't exactly. live in a universe which is free from these kinds of strictures. Yeah. Well, Atwood, I think, you know, took care to um, only include things that had been done in some form in somewhere in the world, um, which is very interesting. I mean, I think that's huh. what's part of what's troubling in the reading the book and watching the show. The show takes some liberties, but fundamentally everything that happens in it is something that has happened to women at some point in history. Um, and which the modern really Western guts you. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right. Uh, totally. And the yeah. modern Western setting of it also means we can't distance ourselves from right. it. Right. Yeah. Like right. usually when we're reading about women who aren't allowed to be exactly. literate, they are exactly. in some other country right. far away with the darker skin and right. this time like that's yeah. really not no, true and, and it shouldn't you... take that to bring it home right. to us but right. there is something like really hard about it it really it does bring home that yeah just quickly also worth noting that this was a technique used to subjugate slaves um enslaved right. people yes. and and, and right. we should probably touch on race at some point if we can anyway, well the tv show deals differently with race than the book the book assumes we're in the nor you know the sort of standard racist society with a caste system and the yeah. the show doesn't do that at all the show has people of color treated very much as if like color doesn't matter doesn't it right i mean there there have been some really great articles. There was one, I think, on Bitch Media that was arguing that although the actual the actual actors of color aren't uh like their character arcs aren't changed um or or don't really reflect a lot about a lot of thinking about race, the sort of themes of the book where you have complicit uh where you have disempowered people being complicit in an oppressive structure in order to keep whatever shreds of power they do have and then like taking out um, their anger on the people below them. That's like a very sort of white womanhood uh, thing. So white women are participating in a patriarchal 
power structure that deprives them of some agency in order to have more agency than this other class of people, right, black right, right, men right, and right. also black women. Right. Um, so they'll they'll sort of participate right. in their own oppression. Right. Or that white women fight for themselves, but not for women of color. Let's say that's yeah. also a factor, right? Which is certainly yeah. a critique of certain kinds of feminism, um, contemporary right. feminism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, can certainly see that structure, I think, replicated in some in some ways in the show. Um, yeah. I mean, in the in the structure of the of the world, rather. Actually, even in that line, doesn't the commander say women don't know how to count? They think that one plus one plus one plus one is just one plus one plus one plus one, as opposed to this yes. more like solidarity. It adds up mm-hmm. to four. Everyone mm-hmm. work together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking a lot about um, American slavery, you know, because, of course, one of the questions you have watching the show is like, well, why don't they revolt, which is a question historians have asked about slaves. And the answer is obviously very complicated. You see here very firsthand, like how it would be incredibly difficult to like what the power structures are that enlist people in, um, you know, their own oppression and make it very difficult for them to you know, have agency um, in any way. I mean, just the the sense of the bodily harm being so present. I just read Colson Whitehead's um, book, which is really wonderful, The Underground Railroad, which really also gives you that sense of just the, the constant, the omnipresence of bodily harm. Hmm. Um, and and how, the utter lack of opportunity for yeah. collective action. It, well, that's the thing, right? The way, the way that the systems make it impossible to communicate in such a way that you could right, create collective action. I have one question that we haven't quite touched on, which is we sort of did, but... You know, an aspect of the book is that um, we talked about this before, the sort of, you know, kind of reaction to 1970s radical feminism. But there seems to me in the book a lot of discomfort with kind of non-monogamous sexuality. Yes. Um, Did you think that, I mean, I was wondering, like, is outward like where I was trying to figure out the authorial relationship because there's a lot of invocation. I mean, it's one of the reasons, and in the show too, it's one of the reasons they build this society, right? It's sort of like, oh, well, women weren't getting what they wanted; they were being used and discarded, and this, that, and the other. But I was trying to figure out Atwood's own relationship to all of it, which I know is impossible. But there's something odd about it in the book. It doesn't feel like she's saying this is a foolish critique. It feels like she that the, the book seems to inhabit that discomfort. Is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, I think there is something to that. And it's also true in the scene we were talking about in the brothel. It's not a scene of empowered sex workers, right? It's right. a scene of like right. used and abused prostitutes. And again, you just have this feeling that there's only one kind of sexual relationship or maybe no kind of sexual right, relationship right. that <laughs> right, she right. thinks is um, healthy. Yeah. Well, but oh, maybe I'm just too uh, affected by the vision of the show, but I thought the adulterous relationship between Luke and June was kind of idealized. Like it's yeah. there's that maybe it's just yeah no because well, their the show, relationship there's that, is like, idealized. Really yeah. Yeah. beautiful sex scene that was like really I don't know wholesome and pure and <laughs> lovely, and it was all about sort of physical pleasure and two mm-hmm. people trying to satisfy each other and who love each other, and that's then true. that's juxtaposed with the sal- the what do you call it the ceremony, um, yeah. which is just this like abomination. Like it's so disturbing. It's so chilling ever. to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was thinking, who is this possibly benefiting? They all look miserable. Oh, Those God, man looks miserable. Katie, oh. it's the 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 whole society depends on it. Human well, civilization. Uh, well, um, I mean, I think <laughs> I think you're exactly. Yeah. I think you're right about the um, relationship between 
Luke and June on the show, but it's not in the book. In the book, there is guilt mm. about the fact that mm. he was married to someone else. It doesn't feel like, oh, they came together in the way that they were meant to be and like life is complicated. It feels like this is something that this is one of the reasons their society fell apart because yeah. there was a licentiousness that had to be paid for. And also she has these lines about how he might not be the last. He wasn't the first man and he might not be the last. And then she feels a lot of guilt about sleeping with mm. Nick, which that seems very understandable. Um, but then might, might not be the last line was weird because it felt again a little self-blaming. I don't know. We're just yeah. I, maybe we're I'm being too... Certainly, I think it's interesting. There seems to be a discomfort with the kind of new, the new ways of society, um, you know, yes. Western society beyond Gilead, but just like what we would recognize as our society. There seems to be some discomfort with that, that we think of as being traditionally conservative. And yet it's in this book that's now kind of being made into a TV show that's kind of heralded as like, you know, almost the liberal vision of what the conservative world is. So it's it, there's a complexity mm. there that's quite interesting and that I wasn't expecting to find when I went back to the book. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, in the book, you you feel a little bit like you're not sure what the answer is to the accusation that a lot of people, specifically women, suffered in what are our times, right? Like, you think, well, but they had freedom. <laughs> it's got to be better. But you're sort of forced to think about the idea that maybe this new command structure is actually onto something and had a reason for destroying the old society. Yeah, and even like characters like Janine, Atwood seems a lot crueler about Janine than the show. Yes. I'm just thinking of of various women who come in for harsher treatment. Mm. Um, and I suppose Serena Joy, too, is has almost no redeeming characteristics in the book. A hard show to watch. A hard show to watch. Yeah. I kind of would was... love to talk about it every week because with you two because it's I have a lot to say about it and I it's it's uh, Whatever. It's painful. It would be nice. It would be cathartic to speak with you about it. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, maybe we should quickly, it, again, it feels weird to ask like, hey, would you recommend this lovely piece of entertainment for readers? But um, would you guys recommend No, I recommend think you can ask the, that. I mean, yeah. we do recommend it. Yeah. All yeah, right. So Emily Bazelon recommends it. <laughs> Megan O'Rourke, founder too. of the Audiobook Club, recommends it. So <laughs> definitely check it out. I too recommend it. <laughs> Um, well, thank you guys so much. This was great. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Megan. Thanks for listening. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. And for more books, check out the homepage for the Slate Book Review at slate.com slash books. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. It really helps other people discover the show. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch, and thanks for the assist, Afim Shapiro. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Megan O'Rourke and Emily Bazelon, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening, and see you next month.